But today we're in week two of Advent, and we're going to kind of focus in on the theme of peace. We're going to hear again from the text in Isaiah that we heard read to us. Uh, My favorite part of that reading was the actual reference that was read by Luke. That was my favorite part. I liked your reading too, but he's very cute. So um, uh, that's where we'll be. So if you want to open in your Bible, you can to Isaiah chapter 9. It's not necessary, but you can open there if you want to. Um, in the kind of global church, we've talked about this before, but there are two kind of big buckets of traditions that you can kind of categorize as uh, one is high church and one is low church. Uh, if you're wondering, we would be in more of the low church category, meaning not that one is better than the other, but um, that low church kind of values uh, a little bit less formality. We don't tend to do things, at least in a written liturgy, uh, although we do have like a liturgy or a set of expectations of the things we're going to do together. Uh, and high church would be the traditions that tend to be more centered around um, those liturgies and things like that. And uh, the high church traditions tend to have really, really great art as well. Uh, they tend to have more contemplative things in their tradition than the low church. Uh, so one of the kind of markers that it tends to be the case is that in our stream of Christianity, in the low church stream, it's where I grew up, uh, in this kind of version of Christianity, we tend to say that you find God just beyond comfort. So you kind of come to church and you have this experience uh, of worship, and in the more Pentecostal uh, parts of that stream, you'll see that in things like different kinds of expressions in worship where you go beyond your comfort zone and there God is. Whereas in the high church model, uh, they tend to see it as finding God almost right in the middle of normal. Uh, And so the liturgy helps us with that. You do the same thing every week, and there's a beauty in that, and there God is right in the middle of it. And so both of these traditions have a ton of value, um, and I tend to be attracted to um, the high church traditions, partly because they're mostly new to me because I didn't grow up in that kind of tradition. So that might be you as well. So things like having the Advent candles following the four weeks, uh, there is somewhat of an attraction to that because it's not the norm for the type of church I came from. Um, And so uh, when I was being trained for ministry, and this still happens at almost every conference you go to or thing you think about for growing your church, right? Which if you've talked to me before, I have strong opinions about that, Um, and we can talk about that when I don't have a microphone in my face. But um, a lot of conferences and training and things will talk about the idea of how you're supposed to make your gatherings very welcoming to those who are outsiders. Great idea, right? Should totally do that. Uh, But one of the traditions in our gatherings that that often gets tossed out is the one we just did a few minutes ago, uh, where we greet one another. Um, and so people will say, well, it makes introverts feel uncomfortable or it makes new people feel really weird. And listen, I get that. I absolutely despise name tags in church, probably unreasonably so. I'm not saying I'm reasonable about it. I just hate it. I don't like it. Uh, they seem weird to me. Um, but in many church traditions, the time that we would call the greeting time has another name, and many of you know it. Uh, we actually have it labeled this way. If you were to come up here and look at our order of service, uh, we call it the passing of the peace. Uh, and we can do the little exercise where if I say peace be to you, and also with you, right? And that's what people do. And they're literally saying that as they're shaking hands or greeting one another and passing the peace. Uh, and so when we hear the word 
peace, many of us think of that idea of peace just kind of being a lack of conflict. And certainly that is part of what peace is. It is not less than that, but it is probably more than that. I, I would argue that biblical peace or the peace of God is more than just a lack of conflict. Uh, and I think that's really poignant for the things that are happening right now in our world, in Israel-Palestine, as we think about conflict and war and atrocities and genocide uh, that we hate to see happening, uh, that thinking about not just a right? It wouldn't just be good enough for us to think of a lack of conflict, but we would want something beyond that. We would want actual peace or shalom, as we might uh, see it called in the Bible. And so a lack of conflict is not the full picture of peace that the second week of Advent is helping us to walk in and remember. What we need to do is look for God's sort of definition of peace. And so that's what we want to do this morning just for a few minutes um, in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to read you again verses 6 through 7. I would encourage you, obviously read the whole Bible, but I would encourage you to read the full context of Isaiah chapter 9 because there's some really interesting stuff in there. But this is the famous Christmas verse. Maybe some of you have this on like a cross stitch, maybe, or like a, a coffee mug, um, something like that. Or if you, uh, you, you know, you could get it on a t-shirt. This is very, very popular verse. Um, and so let me read to you verses 6 and 7 out of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, let me just stop there and say this. Many times people talk about Christianity and say Christianity should not be in any way political. But if you just heard me read that verse, that is political, right? I don't mean partisan, right? A pastor shouldn't stand up here and tell you what to vote for or who to think is better, right? That's for you to decide. But the government on his shoulders... That has to do with how we relate to one another. His name shall be Prince of Peace, right? A prince is a ruler over a kingdom. That's political conversation happening there. It says this in verse 7, of the increase of his government, okay, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we could do a word study on the Lord of hosts and the zeal of the Lord of hosts, and that would be a really interesting thing. But just understand, God's going to do it. This is a promise that's going to happen. Now, as we think about this, I want to make sure that we understand that while, yes, this is talking about Christ ultimately, we have to also understand that this text is actually not talking about Jesus as well. So let me explain. Isaiah is a prophet. Now, we, we tend to think of a prophet as like a future teller. Now, sometimes that's the case, but really a prophet is someone who speaks the word of God on behalf of God to the people of God. Okay, so Isaiah is a prophet. His ministry is to speak God's word, but we need to set the context for his particular ministry when he says this. Before this time, the people of Israel were living as slaves in Egypt. Uh, someday we want to do a series through the book of Exodus. That will be like two years long probably. It sets the tone for the entire narrative of redemption. And, and so that's where the people of Israel are living, and God sends the plagues uh, that end with what's known as Passover, the Israelites escaped Egypt through the Red Sea. They then wander around the desert for, you know, just a little 40 year, just a little while. 
then they get into the promised land, and God knocks down the walls of a city called Jericho. They establish again this kingdom of Israel with 12 tribes. And then the Israelites get discontent, as we are wont to do as God's people. Uh, they want to be like everybody else. They say, God, we want a king. God's like, bad idea, but I mean, if you want to, okay. And so God gives them a king, King Saul, then we get King David, then we get King Solomon. And soon after this, what God said was a bad idea, turns out he was right, as he always is. It was a bad idea. A civil war breaks out. Israel becomes the name of the northern kingdom, and it consists of 10 tribes. And Judah becomes the name of the southern kingdom, and it's just two tribes and suddenly the people of Israel all hate each other. Each one has their own king, or at least they're in conflict with one another. They have their own king. And then we have the Assyrians and the Egyptians. They start attacking. And so Isaiah is a prophet who is speaking to Judah, the southern two tribes of God's people, the nation of Israel. Isaiah holds this position for 50 years. For 50 years, he's a prophet. That's incredible. And he speaks the word of God to five different kings. And so in our text here, he's talking to the second of those five kings, King Ahaz. Now, King Ahaz was 20 years old when he came to the throne, and he ruled for 16 years until he was 36, and he is terrible. He's like the worst. Uh, he basically said, I can, I can do this on my own, um, and Isaiah has been telling him you need to repent, uh, but he's a young man, so he doesn't listen to wisdom, I guess. And so the people, in fact, do repent, but King Ahaz does not. He refuses. He's stubborn, stiff-necked, you might say. And so Isaiah starts telling them about a future when things will be better. He starts casting a vision for them. And in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And if you know what that word Emmanuel means, it means God with us or God present with us. So then in our text in chapter 9, we start to learn about who this child is that's going to be born. It says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says that his rule and his peace will go on and on and on forever and ever. But we have to remember the context of this statement. Much of this comes true in the birth of Hezekiah. That's the king after the bad king Ahaz. So as Hezekiah grows up and becomes the king of Judah, Israel, the northern tribes, they attack. And then Assyria begins to attack Israel. And afterward, there's, there's a kind of peace in the land for a time. And so we, we mention that just so that we understand that the people who originally heard the prophecy did not understand it in the same way that we understand it today. right? They, they had a different uh, ability to see through the lens of history. They would have seen it maybe as referring to Hezekiah, but also understanding that many of the statements about him were beyond him. He wasn't born of a virgin. And yet many of the things that Isaiah said about this person were in his life as well. And so today, we have a benefit that the people in that time didn't have. Uh, the New Testament, a couple metaphors that we used to think about this, is the New Testament is like glasses that we can put on that through which we can view the Old Testament in its fullness. Or another way to think about this, uh, uh, how many of you have driven from here to Frederick somewhat recently, right? So you know there's that point in the highway uh, I think it's 70, right, that gets you there, where you come and you finally, like, see the mountains, right? And I always get excited, and I'm like, oh, because I grew up in Southern California, so I like mountains, and get excited. But the Old Testament is hitting that part of the street, or that part of the highway, right? You see the mountains in the distance. You know there's mountains there. 
The New Testament is that scene in Lord of the Rings where they get to the top of that hill at the end of the first movie, and it looks just like, oh, some of you perked up, what? Right? You, you, they get to the top of the hill, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's right here, and then it's a vast mountain range on the other side. Right? And so this is what it's like for us. We are the folks who have the advantage of understanding the fullness of the mountain range. The Old Testament, they were looking ahead and they could see that there was something coming, but they, they didn't have the advantage of time that we had. And so this is the way Jesus used and saw the Old Testament. After his resurrection, Jesus was walking with his disciples. He said this in Luke 24, Oh, foolish ones. Now, this is a term of endearment from Jesus. Oh, little ones, right? This is us going, guys, I love you guys, right? He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, beginning with the mountain range, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He shows them the fullness of the range of the mountains. So Jesus says, this text in Isaiah, what, right, it's one of the prophets, is ultimately about him. So while it's partially about King Hezekiah, it's not fully fulfilled in King Hezekiah. For instance, the text says, this kingdom and peace will never end, but Hezekiah died, right? He died, his son Manasseh was evil, and so the prophecy is not fulfilled ultimately until Jesus in the book of Matthew, 14 times, uh, the author Matthew says that Jesus is fulfilling something from the prophets. That word fulfill means to take something that's kind of like partially full and to fill it all the way up to the brim. I actually was thinking about this last week. So those of you that know me, I cook a lot, which means I clean my kitchen all the time, never ending. Uh, I was lamenting that to my mom the other day, and she was like, man, too bad, you're an adult now. Um, and so I was <laughs> refilling an olive oil bottle, right? So I, because I cook a lot, I'm kind of nerdy in particular about my tools in the kitchen. So I have this particular olive oil bottle that I like to use because it has the right kind of squeeze lid and it's like just right. And it was getting empty and I was refilling it and I wasn't quite paying attention. I looked over at something and the olive oil spilled out the top and went everywhere. And this popped into my head. This is the idea of fulfilling, right? And, and so this is the way it works when you think about speaking to people a lot. All these examples happen. And so that's what this word fulfill means. It's about completion, right? So what Isaiah prophesied in our text is made partially complete in King Hezekiah, but it's made fully complete only in Jesus. And so I want to just consider how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy and particularly how he brings that never-ending peace that's promised in these verses, because it doesn't seem like that's happening, right? As humans, we are not at peace with God. That's at the bottom of every problem that you see in the world. We would say as followers of Jesus, as those who see the scriptures for what they are, that the ultimate problem down at the bottom of everything is that we are born into sin. Romans 8 speaks of our being hostile towards God. Not neutral towards God, but hostile towards him. Listen to these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So first, just let that sit on you. Are you in Christ Jesus? There is no condemnation for you. It's all been taken. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and, this week's theme, peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And then Romans 5 talks about how God reconciled us through the gospel while we were still enemies of God. And this idea of reconciliation is really, 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 really important. And I I wonder if any of you have ever been through the process of deep reconciliation with a really broken relationship in your life, because if you have, you have a glimpse of of the gospel that not many uh, the rest of us have. I, I will say this, in my life, I know that relationships are always stronger and better on the other side of reconciliation than they were before. But it took the suffering of reconciliation to get there. And so often we're unwilling to go through that process. Listen to what it says about God reconciling us through the gospel of Jesus while we were his enemies. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by works, not by church attendance, not by Bible reading, by faith, all of which those things bolster your faith, but those aren't what save you. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We sang about that today. Late in time, behold him come. Right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So God in Jesus had to go through the suffering of the cross in order to reconcile us back to himself. Being an enemy of God is the exact opposite of being at peace with God, right? Being an enemy is the opposite of being at peace. And what's hard to see for for, uh, me is how lightly I and so many of us treat our sin, right? It's like it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I mean, God will just overlook it. But sin is a big deal. It kills everything that God created to be good. And what we learn in the scriptures is that people are either children of God or enemies of God. And to be an enemy of God is not a good thing. It's not what you want to be. We're enemies of God from birth. We've sinned against God and we cannot escape. I know we don't like this word. We we are unable to escape the judgment that is coming. 
Paul says, wrath of God, right? And yet that's not God's posture towards us. He's just, but he wants to give you mercy and grace through Christ. And so the only hope we have is to be made no longer enemies of God. And we can't make that ourselves. We can't do that ourselves. We can't make that happen on our own. That's the significance of the advent of Jesus. Jesus comes to bring peace, right? Ultimately, peace between sinful men, sinful women, sinful children, and our creator, God. But also that peace then overflows into relationships here in this world. And we all know that it is true that for enemies to become reconciled, at least one of them has to want peace, right? Think about the conflict that's happening right now in Israel-Palestine. Somebody has to extend peace for reconciliation to be able to happen. And in our case, it was God in Jesus. And so what Jesus coming accomplishes for his people is actual, real, lasting peace. We see this very thing in Ephesians 2. I want you to hear this, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like That's a really important picture. You were far off from God. You weren't even close. And you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, meaning Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. He preached peace to the Gentile and to the Jew alike. And so as we said, we're born at war with God. We're not born at peace. Otherwise, he doesn't need to preach peace to us. And he's not only made peace possible, but he is, our, he is himself our peace. He's accomplished peace for us. And so through the gift of faith, what we then have is peace with God. That's the prophecy in our text from Isaiah today. And that's the message we see in that Romans 5 passage we read, which says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, do we Um, Do we believe this? Do you understand this? Have you come to Jesus in this way? If you don't have peace with God today, what this means is that you can have peace with God today. And if you didn't understand that you didn't have peace with God today, it's God's mercy to you for you to hear these words that, oh my gosh, I'm actually not at peace with God like I think I am. I'm blinded by my own sin. And so now God has given me the opportunity to hear the truth that I'm not at peace with him. And also in the same breath shared with me that the peace that he offers me is on the table for me today. You can be made no longer an enemy of God by nothing that you do, but by what he has done in Christ to make you not his enemy. And if your faith is in Christ, then you get to be encouraged and remember once again over the course of your lifetime to be reminded again and again and again and again that you are now not an enemy of God. So when you fail, you don't have to run from him, you run to him. He's your father. He's not your enemy. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is listed. You might know this text or you might have heard it before. These are characteristics, and it's not fruits. It's one fruit, 
These are characteristics that we have as a result of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Here's what it says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The third one, right? Did you catch it? It's peace. We have peace and we can grow in these areas as well. That's part of what we call sanctification. We grow in what we already are. So let me just suggest that we make an effort to pray for and to pursue greater peace in our lives. Just this Advent season, as you pray through the themes of Advent, um, think on that. In Philippians 4, the Bible tells us to bring to God whatever is in our lives that's creating, we would use the word anxiety. Everything that's, anything that's creating unrest in us, to bring these things through prayer to him, right? You were born an enemy of God, but at the coming of Jesus and in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, all of which is re received through faith, you've been made no longer enemies, but children of God. So now when you go to God in prayer, you speak to him like the loving, caring, powerful father that he actually is to you because he's made himself that to you. He has adopted you into his family, right? My kids, my adopted kids, they don't need to run away from me when they get in trouble, when they fail, which they do because they're just people like all of us. They've been adopted into a family. They have an identity now. They know who they are, right? And so the result of this, of our going to God as children, is what we learn in Philippians 4 is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Like I, maybe you haven't experienced that peace. I think some of us got a glimpse of this during the COVID years right? If you were walking with God and it was chaos in the world, it felt like there was some of us who got to experience a little bit of that because of this reality of the peace that Jesus brings. The text we read today from Isaiah is speaking prophetically of Jesus, calls him the Prince of Peace. What does this mean that Jesus is the Prince of Peace? What it means is that Jesus offers us rest in a world and a culture, especially this time of year, that's kind of crazy right? Our schedule yesterday as a family was kind of nuts. It was like two basketball games, then a play. I mean, those of you with kids are like, yeah, it, it just like, it happens and you don't even realize it. Like we barely had time to eat a meal together. And so the peace that Jesus gives us with God is a peace that gives us rest in a time where we feel unrest. And that is not like the peace that Hezekiah might've brought, which was temporary, but as a peace that is not temporary. It will last for all of eternity. That's the basis of all the other peace in our lives, is the peace that we have with God. We have peace with others because we dwell in the peace of God. This is, again, why we symbolize this by our passing of the peace. We're reminding ourselves of the reality that we walk in. So let me just close with a reminder um, with peace comes rest, right? When you're at peace, when you're in shalom, you are at rest. Doesn't mean you don't have work to do. In the kingdom of God, we will have good work to do, even though we will be at peace. But often the Christmas season, as we experience it as Americans, is a time of frenetic craziness, right? And, and it can be difficult for us as we give in to the lies of consumerism, and feel what they want us to feel, which is that we lack things materially, relationally, right? Every commercial, which we don't have as much now. My kids are like, what are commercials? Because they grow up in streaming. 
But marketers know this, right? They appeal to our unrest. They appeal to our lack of satisfaction, our lack of contentment, the lack of peace. Because that will get us to buy things because even though we should, we should have learned this lesson the last 200 times we did it, we buy things because we think once I buy this thing or have this thing, then I will have a little bit more peace. And you will for a couple weeks, maybe, right? And then it will go away. And so we're too easily convinced that if we get this product, if we have a subscription to this service, then we'll be satisfied. And so I just want to ask you again, remind you again, don't take the bait, right? Don't take that bait this Advent season. You have to preach to yourself in those moments. I have to preach to myself in those moments that even if you fail that class, lose that job, lose someone in your life, that you have peace with God. You can rest in that truth. Even if the future doesn't go as you desire, you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so you rest in that knowledge. You rest that the God of the universe, that your creator has made you not an enemy, but a son or a daughter, has brought you into his family, and then you have peace with him and rest with him. And so we can breathe this Christmas season. You don't have to earn anything. You just have to experience the peace of God. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for um, this season. We thank you for all of the tradition and all of the, the things that we celebrate together um, where we get to just experience a little bit of wonder and we get to see pretty things all around us uh, as things are decorated and just looking different than they do the rest of the year. And yet at the same time, Lord, we admit that underneath a lot of that is this unrest of the, us not experiencing the peace that you have meant for us, the shalom that you intended for us in the garden at creation. And so, Jesus, I just pray for those of us who maybe are watching this or who are in this room uh, right now that if we haven't come to you, that we would come to you and experience your peace for the first time. And if there are those of us who've been walking with you for a long time and yet are experiencing maybe just this year or a season of unrest in our souls, that we would be able to slow down, maybe say no to something that we wanted to do or wanted to buy in order to experience rest and peace with you so that we wouldn't just be running around um, like a person who has no rest. And so, Jesus, we just ask for your peace and we ask for your rest. And Father, we thank you for bringing us here today to just experience this moment together. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you empower us as we go out from here this morning and as we live for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.